All right, so we are, we're in the book of Ephesians, and um, if you're not familiar with our church or if you're newer to our church, we, we go through books of the Bible here for the most part. And part of the reason we do that is because we want to preach the whole counsel of God. We don't want to just preach our favorite ideas about the Bible, although that's okay. It's not necessarily sin or anything like that. But we just want to be able to look at God's word together and see all the ways that God is speaking to us, all the ways that God is telling us things about himself and things about what he does and who he is and, and, and who we are. And so, um, and so that's why we go through books of the Bible. And so what happens is... Um, Things like last week where we're preaching on adoption, where how God makes us sons and daughters, and that's a beautiful idea. But then also right in that same verse was this idea of predestination, which is really tough and really hard, and, and it's okay to wrestle with that stuff. But we just want to make sure that we're being thoroughly biblical when we, when we talk about uh, who God is and what he does. And so, um, so what we saw la- uh, for the last couple weeks is that this first passage in Ephesians is verses 3 through 14, and these, three, this, these verses 3 through 14 are, is this poetic blessing that, that Vince taught us in the Greek or whatever is called a barakka or a barracuda. I'm not really sure which, and so I'm not, I don't have time to learn Greek. That's Vince. That's why he's the lead pastor, and, and so we're, we're going through this uh, poetic blessing, what we're seeing is that, that that Paul is telling us all the blessings that we have in Jesus. He's telling us verse by verse more and more things that, that, Jesus, that we have because of Jesus, these spiritual blessings, these good things that we have. And it's like good news on top of good news on top of good news. And uh, I don't know if you've ever had that happen where someone is telling you more information about something, and the more information they tell you, the better the news gets. I don't know if you have that. I've had that. It actually happened uh, a number of years ago around the Super Bowl and. Yes, I'm a pastor doing a Super Bowl illustration on Super Bowl Sunday. You're welcome. And, and so, so what happened was my buddy called me. It was close to the Super Bowl, my best friend, Yvonne. And he said, Anthony, uh, how would you like to make 100 bucks to watch the Super Bowl? I was like, of course I will. Yes, please. Yes and amen. Let's get this happening, Yvonne. And so and I said, so how does this work? Why are we going to get paid 100 bucks to watch the Super Bowl? He said, well, here's this thing. This newspaper, I think it was the Washington Post, they hire 100 people from like five to 10 major cities, and they just pay them to rate every single commercial in the Super Bowl. So they pay them 100 bucks to do that. You have to sit, you have to watch the commercials, and you have to rate them. And I said, this is even better news, Yvonne. I love judging things. <laughs> and so I get to judge every commercial, and maybe even the people in the commercials. I love this, Yvonne. Thank you. And so I get good news first, 100 bucks for the Super Bowl. Second good news, I get to rate every single commercial. And so I said, where is this going to happen? Do we have to do this on our own, Yvonne? Like, how will this work? And he said, well, actually, they rent out a hotel ballroom, and they put up a giant movie screen, and, you, and we get to watch the Super Bowl on a movie screen. And I was like, this is even more good news. I, get to, I, used to, I have like a 32-inch now. I got like a 79-inch or whatever it is. And I get to watch the Super Bowl on this giant screen. And, and people are going to be quiet in the commercials. This is good news, Yvonne. And I said, but here's the thing, Yvonne. We got to bring food we got to bring all this food, and we got to get some snacks. Let's stop at Circle K really quick, or quick trip, because we were in Phoenix, and let's just bring a bunch of snacks. And then Yvonne said, Anthony, there's one more thing. And he said, Anthony, we, they're actually also going to provide an all-you-can-eat buffet. 
there's going to be hamburgers. There's going to be bratwurst. There's going to be nachos. There's going to be chips. There's going to be everything, Anthony. And that's when the, just the happy, silent tears started coming. Like I was just like, yes, Lord, thank you. You are a good God, and I will ever praise your name, right? Like I, I just, and it was just good news after good news after good news. And this is what's happening in Ephesians, and it's even better. This is what's happening in the opening passage of Ephesians. And that's why we're taking time and we're stopping on a verse at a time or a couple verses at a time because it is good news on top of good news on top of good news. It's fleshing out the gospel, which is good news. It's fleshing out who God is, which is good news. It's fleshing out what God has done because of the gospel and because he just loves us and wants us to give him glory. And so my hope for today is that we would sit in that. Because we're just going to be in one verse, and we're just going to be looking at this one verse, and I think that this verse is jam-packed with who God is and what he's done. And I think it should stir us to worship. It should stir us to praise. Here's my concern right now for our church, is I think sometimes, and I've said stuff like this, and I, I still do at times, is we get to a verse that we're familiar with or ideas that we're familiar with as Christians, and we treat the Bible like it's a textbook. And we go, well, I've learned that before. I've heard about that idea before. And I think the problem with that is this isn't supposed to be treated like a textbook. We're supposed to see in it the word of God who shows who he is and the kind of relationship that we get to have with him. And so when we go, oh, I've heard that before, I'm just kind of tired of, of hearing that idea, I think more often than not, you're minimizing who God is. And you're minimizing what he's done for you and for me. And so I think that all through this first passage in Ephesians, there are big, beautiful ideas about God. But I think that if we come to it with any sort of pride or arrogance, we're going to miss out today. God has us in the book of Ephesians for a reason, church. Sure, all the lead team of redemption picked this book for us to go through, uh, and they picked how we're going to go through it, but God wants us to sit in who he is for 39 weeks. He wants to speak to you about who he is for 39 weeks. That shouldn't make you just, we shouldn't be flippant about that. My other concern is this, is, I feel entirely inadequate to preach this verse today. I just, I do. I feel inadequate. I feel like these are big, amazing, beautiful ideas about God, and I, I just want that to come forth. And so today, if you're like, man, Anthony made that sound boring, know that that was me and not God. And God is, is so good. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to be in one verse today. It's Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verse 7, and there's five parts to this verse. Five parts to this verse. So we're going to stop in five different places and talk about what that means for us, okay? And then I hope that it stirs us to worship, and we'll talk about that too. So let's just read it, all the, all, or let's just read it, and then we'll stop in the first place. It says this in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So let's stop in that first part, in him, in him. So that means that, that him that it's talking about is Jesus. If you go back a verse or two, you realize that it, it's Jesus. And saying, in Jesus, we have all these good things. 
So I, I just want to be clear here because I think it's important. I think sometimes some of us are in this room and we're just here because we like really good morals or we like having community or, or, or we, we like certain themes of the Bible. But if you don't get the, verse part, the first part of this verse, you're not getting it. It's in him. All these good things are found in Jesus. We think that he is real. We think that he is alive. We think that he wants a relationship with you. This is not, we just don't like this guy's teachings from 2,000 years ago, so we teach them. We think he is the real God over everything, and we think that he has made us to be in a relationship with him. So we have to base the rest of this verse in Jesus. And if you're here and you're just here for some of those other things, that's okay. But I would ask that you would pray to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me understand what it truly means to be in him. What it truly means that all these things flow from you. Because the Bible uses this in him phraseology through the rest of Ephesians and through the rest of the New Testament. And it's usually in other places when it says we are to be in Christ we are to abide in Christ. It's this idea of our faith brings us unity with Jesus. Like we are connected to Jesus. We're not just his peons and followers. That, that we are, we are, our existence is supposed to be in him. And so I just want to ask, what are you in? And Vince talked about this a few weeks ago. What are you in if you're here? Are you in these good morals? Are you in these beautiful themes? Or you're in Jesus because the rest of this verse is about what we find in Jesus. Okay, that has to be our foundation for today. So, let's keep going. In him, we have redemption. In him, we have redemption. So, we're going to talk about this, we have redemption. That's the second part of this verse. Now, we better spend some time on this since it's the name of our church, you know, so... Um, I thought we should spend some time on it. And instead of me just like read to you some theologian's definition of redemption, I thought we should look to how does the Bible define redemption and how does the Bible show us what redemption is. And it really does through two Old Testament stories. There's these two beautiful Old Testament stories, um, and there's probably some more aspects, but there's two main stories in the Old Testament that show us what redemption is. Okay, so we're going to spend some time talking about that. The first place that defines redemption for us in the, the Bible is the Exodus story. So if you don't know the Exodus story, it's found in the book of Exodus. That's easy. And what happens is the people of God, the family of God, they find themselves in Egypt, and they are all um, enslaved by Egypt. They are the workers of Egypt. They, I personally believe they built the pyramids. Most historians are like, we don't know how it happened. It must be aliens. And, but I think it was God's people enslaved. And so God's people find themselves enslaved, and Pharaoh has forgotten some of his good relationships with the people of Israel previously, and his son, that is Pharaoh, really did. And he starts being much more of a tyrant on the people of Israel. And he starts killing their children, and he starts doing all sorts of things. And so the people of Israel are enslaved, and, and, and God sees that, and their blood cries out to him. 
And he wants to bring his people out of that situation. He wants to redeem his people. And so he raises up this man, Moses, who is also an Israelite. But he's somewhat of an uh, insider in Egypt as well. And he raises up this man, Moses, and he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh. And I want you to talk to Pharaoh. And I want you essentially to say, let my people go. And so Moses says, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, here's the thing. This is God's people. He has established them. He has a place for them. You need to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, that's a, that's a great idea, but I'm not, I'm not going to let them go. In fact, he starts making their work more difficult. The bricks that they have to make, he makes it more difficult on them. And so Moses in Exodus 5, he goes back to God and he's like, God, what's going on? You, you said that I need to go to, these, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, and then he would do, he would do it. But God, you're not, he's not letting our people go. So what's going on, God? And he just has this raw prayer to God. And in Exodus 6, we see God's response to Moses. And it starts in verse 2. And it says this. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. We can stop there. So, he says all that to Moses. He says, listen, I'm going to redeem my people. I'm going to take these slaves, and I'm going to make them citizens of God. And so that's just what God does. He brings down judgment and plagues on Egypt so that Pharaoh turns from his evil ways and would let God's people go. And eventually Pharaoh does, and there's some more nuances to the story there. But this is the picture of redemption that we first get in the Bible. This picture of God taking enslaved, oppressed people and making them free not only making them free, but making them a people. And they are known as the people of God. And so this is our first definition. And the first things we should associate when we think of the word redemption is liberation, is freedom, is rescue, is God rescuing an enslaved people and making them free and making them his people. That's redemption in the first way or first kind of definition for us. The second way redemption is defined is through another beautiful story in the Old Testament called Ruth, all right? So if you ever feel like you want to read a whole book of the Bible, Ruth is four chapters, and you can just read it and just go, hey, I read a book of the Bible today, right? And it's a beautiful story of God's redemption for us. And so this is how Ruth starts. There is a woman, Naomi, and she has two Hebrew sons or two Israelite sons, and there's a famine in Israel, so they move to Moab, and Naomi's sons, they both marry Moabite women. And what happens, though, is these two Israel, Israelite sons, they both die. We don't really know how they both die. And so then Naomi is left with her two daughter-in-laws who are um, from the nation of Moab. 
And she says to both her daughters, she said, or daughter-in-law, she says, go ahead, go back to Moab. I'm going to go back to Israel, and I'm going to try to survive around my people. But you guys get remarried so that you, you have a hope in the future. And one of the girls, she says, that sounds great. Peace out, right? The other girl, she gets a whole book of the Bible named after her, so she, we should pay attention. And so Ruth uh, says, listen, Naomi, I, I, I'm going to go where you go. Your land will be my land. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so Ruth goes with Naomi back to Israel, back to Bethlehem in Israel, and all of Naomi's old friends start seeing her again, and they say, Naomi, what's up? Hey, girl. And Naomi then goes, listen, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because that's how I feel right now, right? This is like someone comes up to me and says, hey, Anthony, what's up? I go, don't call me Anthony. Call me Oscar, because I am straight grouching right now, right? Like, this is... This is how people approach her. It's really awkward. But then we have to think about the place that Naomi was in. Naomi was truly bitter. She didn't understand what was going on. Not only was she grieving her two sons, who I'm sure she loved, but she was probably a widow herself. And then she, one of her daughter-in-laws, who she loved, left, but I'm sure that was hard for her. And now she's back in Israel, but she is in a life that is certainly going to be impoverished. She's going to have a life full of poverty, and it's going to lead to a death that is sooner than average, I think. So she is without hope. She is bitter. She doesn't know, she doesn't understand where God is. She doesn't know what's going on. She is in a dark place, and so she is embittered. So the rest of the story goes is God had set up this kind of system for the the poor to to be cared for, and Ruth was uh, essentially taking part in that system. And through that, she met this guy named Boaz. And Boaz was this generous guy, and he was generous to their family and cared for their family. And so Ruth comes home to Naomi and says, hey, there's this guy, Boaz, great dude. He's been awesome. He's been caring for us. And Naomi, or Mara, I'm not sure what she was going by at the time, she says, listen, Boaz is is one of our kinsmen redeemers. That's amazing that you've met him. And this is where we get our second idea of redemption in the Bible is through this thing called the kinsman redeemer. And so what we find out about the kinsman redeemer was what God had set up was that for those that became widows, he had a relative of the husband of the widow um, buy the land from her and marry her and produce an heir. So that this man would come in, and in that patriarchal society, right, like these women couldn't provide for themselves. They needed uh, the men to work at the time, or maybe they did it, but that's how it worked. And so God set up this system. And so this uh, kinsman redeemer Boaz would come in, and he could buy the land, marry Ruth, and produce an heir. And the, the heir would perpetuate the name of the relative who died. And he would also, the heir would probably take care of the family as a whole. And so this is that second idea of redemption. And so Naomi says, Ruth, Boaz can redeem us. Boaz can take care of us. He can give us hope and a future. Like right now, we're, twi- we're, we're pointed towards poverty and death, but Boaz could redeem us. He could use some of his resources to save us and give us hope again. So you should talk to him about that. And so in a really weird story, um, Ruth goes up to Boaz and just says, hey, will you redeem us? And, and Boaz is like, okay, sure, that sounds great. And he goes, but there is a relative closer to me. There's a kinsman redeemer closer to me. I got to talk to him first. And we see how this story, how this conversation unfolds in Ruth chapter 4, verse 3. 
And this is Boaz talking to the unnamed other kinsman redeemer. He says this, Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So then Boaz goes on, and he makes the purchase. Basically, this guy, he sees like there's going to be a cost, and he's like, oh, there's some, there's some land involved. I, I could take on some land and make some new crops. But then he finds out that Ruth is also involved, which means that all that land is going to go to Ruth's heir, whoever to per- perpetuate the name of Elimelech. And so he was like, that's too much of a cost. I'm not really getting that much out of it. I'm not going to do that. But Boaz says, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to pay that price. I'm willing to do that. And so he buys land, and he marries Ruth, and he gives her an heir who happens also to be in the line of Jesus. And this is our second picture of redemption. Is someone willing to pay the price to get someone out of a dark place headed towards poverty and death and bring them into their life. So that's the second idea of a redemption. The first idea, liberation, freedom, rescue. The second way, rescue as well, but using resources to pay for someone to be saved and rescued out of the dark place that they're in. Do you see the differences? And so when Paul says that we have redemption, he's saying that we have both of these things in Jesus. Jesus gives us both of these things. Jesus liberates us, and he has paid the cost. There, it's, so when I say that we should get this right as a church, when I, when I want redemption, when our name is redemption, what my hope is is that those in this room and those in our body, that we would understand how deeply we've been liberated, how much we've been rescued, What have we been liberated from? The Bible says our sin is our enslaver. We're enslaved by our sin. So our liberation comes when God frees us from our sin. And so I want us as a church to see that we are a people that have been liberated from our sin. And then this is what I hope as well. I hope that many people that are enslaved to sin come through these doors and we give them this message of redemption and liberation. That's what I hope. The second idea of redemption is this idea of someone paying the cost to rescue someone in a dark place. So I wish that we would understand how dark of a place we were in. And God paid the cost to save us, to give us a hope, to give us a future in him. That's what I hope. And so I hope that people could come through these doors and we can give them that message, that people that are in very, very dark places, that we could say, well, you know what? Jesus has redeemed you. He has paid the cost for your life. He has hope for you. That's what I hope happens in these doors and in our, in our, our season and in our mentorship and in everything that we do as a church, that we would have 
Jesus at the forefront and we would see his twofold redemption. And that we would understand it for ourselves, that we would understand how enslaved we personally were to sin and how dark of a place we personally were in and how God rescued from us from both of those things. That's what I hope for us. So the next two parts of the verse, they actually show us what was the cost that Jesus paid and a bigger picture of what we've been liberated from. So in him, we have redemption. The third part of the verse, through his blood. We get to find out that, that Jesus redeemed us with his blood. That's what it took to save us. So to get your life, to pay for your life, he used his life. This, just, this shows us how serious sin is. If you're, if you're coming to the Bible and you're like, oh, God doesn't really care about sin. No, he really cares because he became sin on our behalf. And what that took was killing him. And he died and his blood was shed for us. That is the cost God paid to redeem you. God used his life. He didn't just give us a bunch of commandments and he didn't say, just do your best. And that's what will redeem you. No, Jesus said, no, I will redeem you with my very life. I will give my life for your life. Much like Boaz gives a, a, a huge sacrifice of his resources, his life's inheritance for Ruth's inheritance. God saves us through his blood, and his blood shows us how serious sin is, and then it also reminds us what started this redemption process in the first place. It was our blood crying out to God in Egypt. And yes, we're not the people of Israel, but they are a picture of what God wants to do with all of mankind. And so our blood, our death was crying out to God, so God gave his life so we could have life through his blood. So in him, we have redemption through his blood, and then the forgiveness of our trespasses is the fourth part of the verse. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Now that article, the, there shows that the forgiveness of our trespasses is linked to what we have redemption in through his blood. And so this is a picture of our redemption as well, that we have forgiveness, uh, forgiveness of our trespasses, which is just another word for sin. So the sin that we have, God has freed us and forgiven us from it. It's crazy to think that we were the, honestly, when we think of how we're enslaved to sin, we were also, in a sense, in the story, we're kind of our own little pharaohs. Because we let ourselves be enslaved to sin. We choose sin. And yet God says, no, I want to save you. I want to redeem you of that. I want to forgive you of those trespasses so that you can be my people, so that we can live together one day. And so I don't know how many of you deal with shame and guilt, but I know that I deal with shame and guilt, and it's probably partially due to growing up in the church, but it's also partially due to just the fact that I think it's very much a human experience to deal with shame and guilt. And so what I mean is I think all humans deal with shame and guilt, and it's because we all fall short of God. That, 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 that's the truth in there, in the shame and guilt. But the forgiveness of our trespasses, God is essentially saying, I cover that. I cover your shame. I take away your guilt. So even though that we should still be shame-filled, even though we should still feel guilty, God says, no, I'm going to take that. I'm going to forgive you. 
And so even now, if we can, I think, begin to experience what that's like, if we focus on the gospel and see that that's true for us. But even now, I think there are days where I, I've been doing this thing like uh, at least legitimately for 15 to 17 years now, and I, there's still days where I feel shame and guilt. And God says to me, one day, I'm coming back. I'm going to live with you, and there's going to be no more shame or guilt for anybody ever again. So when we see the picture of our liberation, that we have the forgiveness of our trespasses, that should mean something to us. This broken part of us, God wants to fix. God has redeemed. And part of that process is that he forgives us. That he forgives us. He forgives you and for me and me. So how do we get all this good stuff? How do we get this redemption? How, how do we have this? I'm glad you asked because that's the next part of the verse. It says this. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. According to the riches of his grace. So according to the riches of God's grace. According to the riches of Jesus' grace towards us. So grace is simply defined as unmerited favor. Favor you get based on no merit of your own. That God shows you favor. Not because you did something, just because he wants to. Just because he has riches of grace. It's a lot of times grace is shown to mean like a gift. God, just something God gives. Nothing you, you didn't do anything to earn it. That God just out of the abundance of who he is wants to give you a gift of salvation. And it's because of his grace. So friends, how do we get this redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses? You don't. Jesus just gives it to you. There's no getting to it. There's no climbing to it. There's no earning of it. Jesus just gives you this redemption. Jesus just saves you because he has riches of grace. Riches of grace that we get to experience. This is good news. Because if we treat this thing like a textbook, like I said, we might be trying to figure out, okay, i got to follow the Ten Commandments, but then there's like 600 more, so I'm not sure what to do there. Like, we would get confused, right? But, but luckily, Jesus clears us up. He says, this is all because of grace. This is all based on what I have done for you. This is all based on how I have redeemed you and liberated you and forgiven you. Because Jesus stepped in our place. Jesus showed us what it means to be human by living perfectly. Jesus died a death on the cross for your and my sin. And he raised from the dead to share in life with us so that this verse could be even more meaningful for us. And it was all not due because you figured it out or you followed the right commandments or you were born into the right family. It was all due because of God's grace, the riches of his grace. And that's the verse. If you're paying close enough attention, you could have memorized it in that time. And I want that verse, I want it to stir in us worship. I want it to cause us to worship God. And I don't just mean praise and sing to God, but that is worship. But in the Bible, there's this robust idea around worship. And it's simply that with the totality of our lives, with everything that we do, we could be worshiping God. We could be giving him glory. 
And so I hope that we look at this verse and it truly changes us into more fervent worshipers. I don't think that's right grammar, but more fervently worshiping God as his people because I think that's what it should do because of how good he's been to us. And so if that's the case, it's going to change everything that we do. It's going to change how you talk. If you're worshiping God in everything you do, it's going to change how you talk to people. You're going to treat your spouse better with your words. You're going to treat your family better with your words because you understand what dark place you came from and what enslaved sinner you were. That now you have this freedom and forgiveness found in Christ. And so you could treat others as if you've been liberated and as if you've been forgiven. I think it will change how we forgive others. Right there, I... I get in so many conversations with people, they're, they're like, Anthony, I can't forgive that person. So I just can't. And I would just say, man, the key to this is understanding how deeply you've been forgiven. Yeah, people have done horrible and atrocious things, but we've done worse to God. It would, it would change everything. It would change how you work. If we, if we treated our work as worship to God, it would, it would change how we work. Instead of working like enslaved people, we would work like free citizens of the Most High. And so I think that if we look at this verse closely, if we really just gaze at who God is, it will turn us into worshipers. And I could probably give a million different ways that that would play out. But what I want you to do is to look at your life and look at how you can become a worshiper of God through every facet of your life. By letting it be fueled by Jesus and what he's done and how we are found in him. And so I just want us to see God for who he is and praise him because of it. That's why we say all of life is all for Jesus. We think that the totality of our lives could be spent in worshiping Jesus. That doesn't mean we have to walk around everywhere singing to him just means in our very actions it shows who Jesus is and the gospel. But then it is also singing to him, and it is also sharing the gospel. So I hope that this stirs us to be worshipers. I want us to be a people that understand the redemption and the forgiveness we have. So I'm just going to read this verse one more time, and then we're going to pray. So I just want to gaze upon Jesus in him, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Let's pray, family. God, we love you and we're so thankful for you. I don't know, God, how you could pack so much into half of a sentence, but you did. And I think that just shows how infinitely loving you are and how infinitely good you are. And so God, help us, um, you know, creating us new hearts. Remind us of our salvation. Remind us of how we've been redeemed. God, a lot of us know these truths about you, but truly help us to believe them. Truly help us to know them. God, work in our hearts. Help us to become worshipers. 
And not just when we sing, but when we do everything else. That we have lives of worship dedicated to you. God, we we really just need you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for redeeming us through your blood and for forgiving us of our sins. And thank you for just extending your grace to us. This is all found in Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen.